to Pod Save Africa. Welcome 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 to Pod Save Africa. Welcome. Hello, welcome back to Pod Save Africa. I know, right? It's been a while. It's your host, Akade Adirale, and we are back. Proud to be, happy to be. We've missed you dearly. We hope you guys have missed us as well. Um, we're ready to get back into producing and delivering content to you. And um, it's my pleasure to introduce my wonderful co-host. I was wondering when you were going to let me speak. I have, you have, <laughs> I hear, oh my also, God. It's Katsala, really. How are you guys doing? Hope you're well. <laughs> awesome. awesome. Hopefully they're well. Um, hopefully your families have stayed safe, uh, sanitized, um, in good health and the best of spirits during this this crazy year um i know it's felt like it's been forever because it's 2020 but we've been gone for about three months um i think that leads us into some of the things we wanted to go over you our wonderful listeners with um going over with you our wonderful listeners right um we have started to think carefully about what formats and standardizations we can apply to the podcast so you guys know what to expect um at the very beginning when we started it was you know an episode every week um, unfortunately, that's not a thing we can actively do and still produce the best type of content for you guys. Um, so we've decided to actually move to a bi-weekly model where you get an episode every other Sunday, right? Starting this Sunday until we shall get another episode moving on forward and forward. Um, what this means is that every season we will have roughly 12 episodes um, and then we plan on taking an annual break of about three months so we can you know, put episodes together and talk to our you know, creative team decide on the things we're, we're building in and working in so that we can continue to produce the best of, of content for you until infinity. Um, Michael, any additional notes? Yeah, so um, just as you mentioned, the break would be for about three months. It would come towards the end of summer. So similar to the break that we took, that's going to become um, a standard thing. Um, so from about mid-June mid till end of September-ish, is when we typically be taking breaks, just so you are all aware. Um, but then we will come back uh, with more episodes. We also just wanted to break down the format of the episodes that we would be delivering. Uh, we typically create four different types of episodes. We have the news updates, which we're about to get into today. Um, we have guest interviews, um, which are a staple um, here on Pod Save Africa. We also have what we call deep dives, where we do research into a, a specific topic similar to what we did with the um, climate change episode, with the um, locust episodes and things like that, and provide you with as much information about that topic as you need to. And then the fourth type of content that we, we are trying to create will be uh, more of a, a group discussion, a panel discussion, where we would have a few other um, people to speak with about a certain issue. So this is the type of content that you can typically expect from the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for going over that, Tony Um That outlines our 
structure and what you can come to expect from Port Save Africa as a podcast. We are unbelievably grateful for your continual listening to us, even while we took a long break. People were still pouring, listeners were still pouring in, you and all, listening to old episodes, getting updates on different things that they may have missed. Um, we have a curated body of well over 100 episodes. So um, we truly, truly are grateful that you guys still care about the content from the first day we started till even now. Uh, we are working hard. We're doing our very best to ensure that we produce the best type of content for you. We've had a lot of personal changes in our life. We both started graduate school fairly recently. So, you know, we've been we've been just honored and, and surprised by the outpouring of support and wonderful um, messages and notes and, and, you know, listeners tuning in every week and still pouring in, you know, just thousands of listens to our episodes every week. We are just so grateful um thank you so much and we thought a great way to start this new season would be to get you guys caught up on what happened in the last three months so we're talking july august and september i know it's been a while i know you've missed us and one of the best things you guys enjoy about our podcast is that we take you out of the bubble of the american the british the wherever news bubble and take you to back to the continent and show you what's going on so we're going to briefly touch on a few stories that we think you should know about from the past couple of months um would you like to get us started yes so starting in the month of july um we're going to be breaking down the highlights um, that we found from this month and unfortunately we're starting with a bit of bad news um from south africa the youngest daughter of nelson mandela and winnie madi sikela mandela passed away at a young age of 59 she was an activist and a poet and a poet excuse me and she passed away in johannesburg um during in the course of her life she served as the ambassador for south africa to denmark and she was due to take up a post as the ambassador to Liberia as well. She also served as a stand-in first lady for South Africa from 1996 to 1998. Um, the current president, um, Cyril Ramaphosa, announced her death at the hospital but did not provide a cause for her death. She was married twice and had four kids. Um, and her death came just days after the Nelson Mandela Day on July 18th. So her life is lived on in through her kids, through her husband as well, and through the work that she did while serving in South Africa. That's a remarkable sad news story. Um, it is, I think, just for some context, you know, the Mandela family in its entirety, all the daughters of his, his uh, partners, his wives were involved in the struggle in different ways. All of them are activists, all of them are preaching the cause. So every time we lose one, it's quite jarring because, you know, that's um, that's legacy and history of individuals who committed their life to the cause of fighting for the betterment of, of Black South Africans. Um, and hopefully their legacy lives on through the many South Africans that are thriving and building better worlds for themselves. Yeah. Yeah, they are indeed living history, right? Um, all of these kids and seeing one pass away is another history that is just gets to stay in the books. And when it's in the books, it can be interpreted or misinterpreted anyhow that it wants. But we hope that it is interpreted in the right way and uh, legacy continues to hold a stronghold over South Africa. All right. So 
I'm going to take you to the next story. So this next story actually jumps across each of the months, right? Um, I figured the best way to deliver this would be to talk about what happened on the story in July, what then happened in August, and what then happened in September. Onika, do you think that's wise? Yeah, I think so. It's- awesome. 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 So now starting with the story, um, we're taking you to Mali, if you're not sure where that is. That is in centralish westernish north africa it's like a weather it's it's north of nigeria um so definitely north africa but also in the one the western tilts but also not so far sorry yes western tilts but also not so far where west where it's not still kind of centralized in the african but most people count it as northern west africa right yeah uh, it's considered a west african country it is considered that is precisely right um so taking you to Mali, um, unfortunately, there's been a lot of police guard unrest there. Um, the president, uh, President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, he announced the he announced the dissolution in July of the constitutional court, right? The country's constitutional court. There was a lot of civil unrest in the in the, in the country in the, in the um, capital city of Bamako. A lot of uh, few people were killed. There were thousands of arrests and thousands of posts of, of protesters. There was lots of political strife, right? Um, and some of the issues, this issue really arose from where he, the the, the, the president, the president through his constitutional court, um, overturned the provisional results of about 30, 30 seats in the uh, parliamentary elections, right? So. They had an election. The president and his constitutional court were basically like, you know, these 30 seats were not, were not, were not, um, were not valid. Those elections were not valid. And as such, um, it appears that those 30 seats were then uh, manipulated to help members of his party get elected. Uh, of course, the people who voted for other people were rightly disappointed, angry, and expressed those, um, ang- the anger through protests and have as such, you know, been part of causing this, have as such been part of, you know, instigating the, the protests against uh, President Keita. Um, there are, so what then happened is that in that same July, a few West Africans went on a high state, a few West African, a West African outreach, a peacekeeping force went on a peacekeeping mission um, to to uh, Mali to go talk to the president, say, you know, hey, let's let's resolve this peacefully. Let's figure out a way to to get this done. Um, the initial the initial group was rebuffed pretty much, and then later in July, the presidents of Ghana, Ivory Coast, Niger, Nigeria, and Senegal um, went there and again tried to as a block up ECOWAS, which is a um, Community, English-speaking community of West African uh, states, um, went there and said, "Oh, you know, let's let's talk to these folks. Let's try and get get a uh, get a resolution." Unfortunately, that also failed. So even you know the big dogs of all your all the countries in West Africa went over there. Um, it didn't it didn't work out. And and then in August, the president was forced out, forced out by a uh, 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 military coup, right? Effectively. Um, and it was bloodless. He was, you know, he he came up, announced he announced his resignation. Uh, he specifically said, you know, today certain parts of the military have decided that the that intervention was necessary. Do I really have a choice? Because I do not wish blood to be shed. Um, he said in a brief statement on national uh, television. He said that he has decided to give up my duty from now on. Um, 
at this point and at that point in August, it's still unclear if the military is kind of still in charge of, of Mali. Um, the understanding is that they are, and then, you know, English speaking, English peacekeeping forces are trying to navigate the situation there as of September and more recently, early, early so, uh, October. So, just to very briefly summarize the presence of Mali, um, almost uh, self inflicted wound put some, some people. In the parliament, that in turn led to a lot of instability, opening the door for the ministry to essentially say, uh, you could stay, but you could also, you know, perhaps lose your life. Um, so that's what happened in Mali. And Anka, any thoughts? <clears throat> it's interesting seeing this story unfolding. It's also an important reminder that despite the world being in general chaos right now, that there's still real life things happening to people around the world. Um, and this story was definitely an example of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a pattern, isn't it? Correct. You know, the the, the the government does something that's unright, that's unfair, um, and then the military eventually comes in and take over. We've seen it happen everywhere from Egypt to Sudan to Zimbabwe to now Mali to Zimbabwe. So it's it's just a recurring theme. Um, I wonder what the path is for us figuring out how. Okay. You know, as the people rise up on protests, how do we make sure that the people with guns don't end up taking over? Because chaos seems to be the, the prime opportunity for the people who have the effectively the monopoly on force to take power. I don't have the answers, but just for our listeners, it's something for you to think about, um, even just as you know, hypothesis of how African countries move forward. Because if the if the, if the leadership is unwilling to leave power, um, and there's no way forward but you know causing some disruption and, and protesting how do we create a situation where then that's you know military forces or people interested in power within the military um don't take power i don't have the answers when going to you i do not but um it'd be interesting to see what they are yeah 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 all right all right so now on to our next story please take us away Yes, so we are going to Rwanda for this story. Um, if anyone here remembers or has ever watched the movie Hotel Rwanda, um, this is a kind of a story related to that. So the protagonist of the of the of that movie, the real life protagonist Paul Rousseff Baniga, who was known for saving more than a thousand people in that in the hotel he managed during the 1994 um, Rwandan genocide was more recently arrested on terror charges. Um, the Rwandan Investigation Bureau, RIB, said that the 66-year-old government... Did you repeat that name? RIB. <laughs> the RIB. <laughs> the RIB. RIB, yeah, there we go. Yes, yes. Said that the 66-year-old government critic was arrested abroad, and they failed to name his location on an international warrant, and taken to the country to face charges of serious crimes, including terrorism, arson, kidnap, and murder. He um, he's suspected to be the founder, leader, sponsor, and member of a violent armed terrorist extremist terror outfits, including the Rwanda Movement for Dem Democratic Change that operates out of various places in Rwanda and abroad. Um, in, the, in the movie in Hotel Rwanda, it showed Rizembaniga not as what is described to be 
through these statements, but instead as a Hutu man married to a Tutsi um, and used his influence as a manager of the hotel to allow more than 1,200 Tutsis to shelter in the hotel rooms. Um, he was, of course, played by the U.S. actor Don Shildo. I think I don't know if I pronounce that name. Don, uh, Cheeto, come Cheeto. on. Cheeto. <laughs> I was like, all right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you know, let's we can scratch that part out. Um, um, but he was instead portrayed to be a hero, right? So to instead seeing see him being painted as someone who's not being a terrorist. Um, that's interesting. What do you think about that, Akeli? So um, here's a time where we as Potter Africa really, I think, bring up again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this story is remarkably complicated. Um, the people who lived through the uh, Rwanda genocide, many of them are victims. Just remarkable violence um, that has now led to remarkable reconciliation um, in the in the country. They've done active steps to to force this risk reconciliation idea of reconciliation um however it doesn't mean the past didn't happen um and and part of our reconciliation process is looking and saying okay what happened in the past now it is not wrong to say that this individual this individual likely did just as he did in the in the in the movie you know he saved you know thousands of people of the opposite uh opposite um opposite clan or tribe yeah you can't you can't exactly call them yeah it's a tribe is inaccurate the opposite uh designation i guess because that's if just reeling back for our listeners the hutu and the tutu designations were largely by uh colonial powers that said hey people who have a little more money and look slightly different from literally their cousins and brothers and sisters were one thing and then their brothers and sisters were another thing created a divide between they literally created a, a divide between two two groups where where the, the divide could exist in a family where one side is considered Hutsis and the other side is considered Tutsis and it's just very strange yeah and then that divide essentially led to because the, the colonial parties favored one over the other and made sure they were getting better access in the society better privileges of course bitterness ensued and grew within the society and it eventually boiled over in the 1994 Rwanda genocide, right? Yeah. So it is not impossible. So it is actually quite likely from, from my understanding and digging back into the story that this actually happened, that he was in fact part of saving a lot of people. However, the realities of that difficult time and difficult war meant that a lot of people have a radicalized view on what the future for the country looks like. And the people that are for whatever reason to them might be legitimate and maybe legitimate have dissatisfactions with the current leadership in that region you know in rwanda and some of the, the neighboring countries um and unfortunately a lot of folks in that of that that's what if any form of leadership had you know unfortunately to lead people in arms and things of that nature in fact the current president if you don't know um was also a leader of of a of a uh, of a Revolutionary Funari Force was what it was called at the time. And replaced the Tutsi monarchy with the exactly. he led the Hutu a Hutu group essentially. So that's precisely right. So 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 he was also what would have probably been regarded to at some point as a you know founder leader and sponsor of a member of violent armed you know extremist groups. So um one thing we will say for you guys is that you know this story was originally reported by Al Jazeera. 
um and you know it's, it's just about perspective right look at context look at how other people are framed he might you know be be a terrible individual who's done a lot of hideous things um he may also have also done something that was good which is saving tons of people um for, of the opposite tribe but another another perspective to consider um mm-hmm. listeners and it's one i saw when digging into this story is to look at the current president paul Yami. He's been president for a while, first off. Um, I can't I, I can't remember exactly how long for now, but he's been president for a long time. And as Akedi mentioned, he was part of that revolution. He was part of um, that, I guess, ultimately ended the genocide. He led a Hutu group, um, Republic, that took over the Tutsis. And if we look back on this story, um, this this man, Rosimbajina, was a Hutu mar- man married to a Tutsi, and was sheltering Tutsis, right? So some perspective that I've seen and I've read is that perhaps Paul, Paul Gami has an agenda against this man um, and is kind of taking it out on him now. I, I don't know how true it is. I don't know the basis for that, but it's just something else to consider as you do more research on this story. The, the truth is that the difficulty with news oftentimes, especially in areas that are a little less information free, um, with not a lot of reports, side reporting different stories, is that there, there, there's not a high variety of perspectives oftentimes on certain things. Um, right. We will try, of course, we've brought many Rwandans on the podcast for better ones for have different perspectives on the current leadership, um, how effective they are, how their relationships are across, you know, other, other leaders in the environment. And they've shared those perspectives. We encourage you to look and read and listen to those episodes. But what we ask everyone to just carry into it is just a, a, a level of, of, of a base level of skepticism mm-hmm. um, that enables you to say, oh, okay, let me actually read into this a little more. Let's actually think about this. Let's think about this. We have no perspective either way. We just offer broad ideas and offer alternatives to the to the material that's presented. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, any final thoughts, or should I go on to the next story? Please go on. Yes. So we we belabored that one a little bit. Let's go to the next story. So I'd like to do a a a a, uh, a COVID reel back. Let's go on the COVID on the. I was about to say let's go on the COVID train. Let's not go on the COVID train. I'm not I'm not on that train with nobody. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. Six feet away. Stories if you can. Uh, no, yes, all the all the but but let's take a let's take a look back and see how the, the continent has done uh performed with COVID um so far. Um to be to be completely honest with you, the truth is that the African continent for better for, for whatever reason seems to be in much better shape than many other countries. Um if I go back to if I go to one of the predictions I've made fairly early in the year. The estimation was that, you know, the COVID virus at the rate of spread, you know, extrapolated against other continents would kill roughly 300,000 Africans just in in 2020 alone, right? Um, In May specifically, WHO warned that 190,000 people on the continent could die if, you know, if containment measures failed. Um, and, and now, you know, and most, more recently, as the world has marked well over a million, actually, I think it's more than a million, more than, much more than a million deaths overall. Um, I haven't kept track, unfortunately, because of sadness. Um, but Africa, I'm happy to report Africa 
for better you know and it's, it's not something that's happy to report because and no no life is no life is too little right yeah. you know, every, every life counts every death you know is, is a huge deal but you know relative to the predictions of 300,000 people um only roughly 3,500 have passed right so whoever make that estimation should probably be fired from that from their job because that's what 10 percent of the people you thought would, would die actually ended up you know you know dying the continent's fatality count starts stand, um, stands at 2.4 percent with about 1.4 million total people infected that 1.4 million people is less than the entire united states right so the entire continent of africa with almost a billion with over a billion people has less cases overall than the united states um, and that's, of course, you know, you can make the argument that that might be for reporting issues, how they diagnose and things like that. But I'll, I'll touch on that in a bit. Um, just to keep, you know, this in context, you know, the, in North America, the fatality rate was 2.9% and in Europe it was 4.9%. If you look at specific countries, you know, Brit- Britain, Italy had Italy had a, uh, had a fatality count of 11.6% at some point. Britain had a fatality count of 9.0%. When you look at Ethiopia, which has 1.6%, Nigeria, which has 1.9%, and South Africa, which is the worst, had 2.4%. So just to give you some context on how red is, you know, how bad it was. So for even the worst hit African country, it was still much better than many of the developed countries. Now, you might ask, okay, why exactly is this the case now? I could, we're not here to propose, oh, we know the answer is African countries just manage this better. Um, that may be part of it, but we can't conclusively say that that was the reason why. Um, the research on temperature differences has come up inconclusive. It doesn't seem like that actually affects whether or not people, you know, get the thing. Yeah. Uh, arguments have been made that, oh, you know, maybe... Maybe the issue is that, okay, you know, people just don't travel as frequently. There are not as many big bustling hubs and centers. That may also be right, but I don't, I can't conclusively tell you that. However, what I can tell you is what African countries have been doing to combat this so far. Um, and I'm leaning on some great reporting from the Brookings Institute by Yusuf Travali and Aretha Mayer. I'm truly hoping I'm pronouncing those two uh, our researchers' names uh, properly. Um, let's start with Senegal, for example. Um, Senegal developed an immune-based diagnostic test for COVID-19 available for only a dollar. Um, and the and engineering students in Senegal built a multifunctional medical robot to lessen the load on healthcare workers. So the two-pronged approach, right? Building something that's cheap and accessible. Of course, one dollar is still kind of out of reach just because of the reality of, of life for many Africans. But still, the one dollar test is remarkable compared to how much. And this was done early on, right? They had a one dollar test you know, a month or two or three months into into the into the outbreak. Now going to Ghana, the, the Ghana had like many other countries, they break down the supply chains um, um, in the country for getting resources to people, getting produce and things like that to people. Um, and it's really, really taken on the, the challenge of e-commerce solutions, building out e-commerce, e-commerce capability for many of its companies, um, much like Rwanda, which has largely um, largely gone cashless as a result of the fact that it was just far more prepared for for a digital economy. So this has kind of pushed Rwanda over the over the line. Um, and more Rwanda, it has used locally assembled drones to assemble to increase like awareness through in-flight public broadcast. So they, they send they send uh, you know 
drones with, with speakers on them to essentially make public broadcast. Like, see how that's so remarkably innovative. When you think about the town fires and things like that, that we used to, that used to, you know, pass information rural, yeah. rural Africa. It's essentially just, you know, <laughs> taking that to the next level, right? Um, so, in addition to that, um, Rwanda has Rwanda has also used uh, uh, locally as sorry I said they locally assembled. So the government of Rwanda with transaction fees on mobile payment transactions, while you know mobile companies were working to optimize the features of mobile payment. So that's you know really just seeing these countries at work doing doing wonderful things. Um, Kenya, South Africa, Lead, Egypt, and Morocco have, have and, and many other countries have launched e-learning platforms. Um, in partnerships with a lot of the, the national broadcasters to fill the learning gap because Africa has roughly 297, 300 million learners actively. Um, so, you know, these are just many, many, many ways that the, the continent is reacting. Uh, the Republic the Republic of Congo, this is interesting on one of the stories we covered before we took a break. Um, the Republic of Congo, Guinea-Bissau, and Tanzania have ordered and received shipments of Madagascar's COVID-19 organic remedy. But, but, but the good news here is that the WHO and the African Centers for Disease Control, the African CDC, have offered to support the design of a study to test the efficacy of the organic product. So what we always hoped would happen that the IGP test is next to works. Not, you know, we're not gonna lean one side, one side or the other. We're not gonna say, oh, it's, it's, it's crap just because, you know, these guys didn't do it through to the, uh, you know, the, the modern processes, but also to actually run uh, clinical trials to see See what happens. So, um, the the government, the government, the, the Malagasy government, which means the government of Madagascar, um, has now registered a clinical trial um, to test the efficacy of the of the of the of the of the products. So it's showing how many countries in Africa, um, and the continent as a whole, is doing much better than otherwise predicted. And honestly, I'm very happy to hear that because um, people who are more learned than me um, predicted much worse. Monica, mm-hmm. any thoughts? I think this is this is not a, a sign for anyone on the continent to relax really or not to take um, safety measures when they're going out wearing their face mask not not meeting up in large gatherings um, and things like that it's not a sign that Africans are less likely to get the virus than um, than other people in other parts of the world but it is it is something to be to be recognized for is something to be celebrated. Um, the fact that we, that the virus was managed better on the continent in the past, looking at um, past predicaments of pan- pandemics that have happened, this has not always been the case, which is why it's understandable that the WHO was predicted such a high number in the beginning. Um, but it, it's been commendable to see that to see that that prediction has failed um, and to see the numbers being back less than it originally has been. Awesome, awesome. Um, just to just to kind of touch on that f- final note, uh, as for prior relativity, well, fewer people have died on the entire continent of Africa than in some major cities in, in the U.S. Now where we're unbelievably sad for every single loss that has happened in the U.S. and in Europe and hard-hit countries um, like Iran and Italy. Um, and we pray for we pray for all of those people's families. That is incredibly sad. And, and that goes the same as well for all the Africans who have lost their lives. Um, lots of 3,500, 35,000 people still 
a lot of people to, to die and there's you know there's no there's no you can't put a number on an individual losing somebody that they care care about their family member brother sister mother aunt whatever the case may be so um you know please move forward with empathy understanding that the entire world has taken a huge set of losses this year um whether you know losing loved ones or losing their jobs as a great result of the 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 front the, the, just the chaos um and hopefully that the world that we build out of this, the progress that we make out of this is not reversed. And we continue to strive towards being better and safer and cleaner and building better society so that yeah. you know, we're all care of. Yeah. Um, Michael, uh, sorry, after I we get off my soapbox, do you want to take our last story? Before we do, I do have a question. Um, as we were covering this story, we saw that many African countries quickly took initiative in terms of trying to curb the spread or to or detection of COVID-19 on their countries. It just leads me to wonder, why does it have to lead to a global crisis in order to do this? There are many, many, not many, but there are a few um, diseases that are that have plagued the continent, a few problems that is predominantly ascribed to African countries. And it, it's just interesting that why is it up until the point of a global crisis to react? Why can't we react every day? You know, um, yeah. I hope this is a wake up call for our African leaders to be more proactive um, all the time rather than at the last hour. Yeah, I think I think one thing we're seeing at minimum, which is perhaps a positive sign, is that perhaps our governments are, are better at being reactionary than we thought, mm-hmm. right? Um, you saw this in the Ebola, Ebola crisis with the, in Nigeria, um, how quickly some of those countries kind of picked up the bats because you know nobody wanted to to go. And I think similarly, many countries have that have had that same level of urgency. Uh, but to a great degree, we also understand that that reactivity is a result of them knowing that, hey, uh, we don't have the entire capacity to handle this thing if it gets back. Like, this thing could decimate the entire country. Um, and we're hoping, really, truly hoping that this is a call to action for, hey, our medical, our internal medical systems, all those things that we need to invest in and build up and be innovative about, you know, funding and, and developing that we need to step it up. Now, I'm not optimistic on that part regarding our politicians and our leadership, but you know, it would also be a wonderful pleasant surprise if we see more development of health facilities, health systems, um, Pan-African health resource sharing and things of that nature um, after this. Um, but that's that's a dream, that's a North Star, um, but we'll see if we get there. Yeah. Now on to our next story. This story comes out of a West African country called Togo. Um, more recently in September, the Togo Prime Minister and his government resigned. They resigned on Friday, September the 27th, um, after he served as Prime Minister since 2015. This resignation comes after the current president, President Fori Nassim B, was re-elected in March for a fourth term thus extending his 15-year rule till whenever it ends at this point. Um, but it's no surprise that he's resigned because the president, that, because the prime minister in Togo is typically appointed by the president. Um, a statement on the president's website said that 
Nassif Bey accepted Klaus's resignation and congratulated his team and his team for their economic, political, and social efforts and encouraging results despite the health crisis around the world. Um, I believe there's currently an incumbent um, prime minister that has been uh, appointed by the current president and um, can't wait to see what that looks like. Yeah, and just to kind of step back and, and take a real gander at one thing I don't think we have ever really quantified, but I'd love to do so now is that um, a lot of African leaders have been in presidency for quite a while, right? So um, the current president of Togo, um, can you help me pronounce his name? Um, uh, it's what? Foreign Um As of he's been in, he's been in office since. Um, 2005. Yeah. So that's 15, 15 years since since he's been in, in, in office. And when you look at when you look at some of kind of the other the other folks who have been in, in, in office, you know some of the top. I mean, the longest running guys have been you know uh, Equatorial Guinea's president. I believe he's still in office. Teodora Obiang Ngwemo. He's been in office since 1979, right? Um, you have the president of Cameroon, Obia. Um, very, very aged individual, as we've said multiple times on this podcast, but he's been in office since 1982. Um, you also have the president of the Republic of Congo, who's had two stints in office, one in 1990, 19, one, to, one in, from 1979 to 1992, and then again five years later from 1997 to more recently. Um, and then, of course, uh, Uganda's president, um, uh, Zimbabwe's president Robert Mugabe used to be one of the longest ones, but he's out. Omar El Bashir is out. Um, so quite Paul yeah. Kagame that has been president since. Yeah, so Paul, Paul Kagame has been president since two thousand. So so you have so he he now is I think out of the time as as of now he's in the top ten longest serving president. So that's not good news um and it's important that they start to think carefully about okay how do we make this sustainable and how does we build people that can come up and lead effectively and take things to the next level because um, that's one of the things you just have to be comfortable with right this idea that you know you will you 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 will have a term you do as much in your term as you can right and and you and you do the best so it's quite it's quite um it's quite, uh, actually, Paul Karame is the 10th, is the 11th longest running uh, president as uh, 26 years. Um, but if I were to lose, so, 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 you know, just, just, actually, no, no, he's, he's, he's top 10, he's top 10, I think he's eight. Never mind, I apologize. I'm sorry, he's top 10 for sure. I was just looking at the stats here. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, these presidents just have to, you know, you have four years at your term or eight years, you know, it's a typical two year, two year term. Do your two years, work as hard as you can, develop the nation, also develop succession plans. But make sure this country can succeed beyond it because we are all mortal, mortal, right? It's why um, whatever thing, whatever thing you believe created us, for for me, I believe, you know, God created us, created us for 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 a brief amount of time really in, in the history of things. So um, there's no no amount of effort or things you do that makes you think you'll be able to leave that leave live there forever you can be there forever so you know build an impact do your eight years do your 10 years whatever the case is go retire right 
um, we maybe need to start like a retiring a retirement home for African former African leaders. <laughs> many of them um, um, kind of leave. So um, let's. Oh, maybe that's the name of the episode: Retirement Home for African Leaders. Aha, there we go. Um, so and then I'm on to the final final story. Final story. So the final story we're happy to. This actually happened in August, but Africa was 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 declared free from from wild polio virus by the WHO, which is, I mean, you know, I remember growing up seeing a ton of people with, you know, limbs, children that were lost to polio, things like that. Um, it is just a remarkable accomplishment. As of the 25th of August, um, Africa, the entire continent, you know, billions of people were declared polio free. Um, there are only two countries now in the world where the virus re- remains endemic, which have Afghanistan and Pakistan. We hope for a, for a, a swift um, end to the endemic polio virus there. But it's just, I think it would be a great great way to conclude this episode that, you know, looking at something that's effectively kicked the world for, what, almost 50 years now, right, um, is, now, is, now, uh, is now declared, declared free. Um, lots of wonderful organizations have worked high effectively on that and sacrificed a lot of resources for being able to do so. But it's just nice to know that you know, you know, you won't have kids born with with limbs anymore. That you won't have children lost in their younger ages to polio, polio virus anymore. It's it's uh, it's wonderful news. Yeah, it's even more wonderful to see that this could happen in the middle of a pandemic where everything right. Should have really just gone left, um, and this is more celebratory news that we can, we can lean on in um, downtimes, knowing that um, the entire continent, that means all 54 countries, you know, are free from the wild polio virus. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. So that covers our that covers us. That is us. That is our. That those are your stories for. The past couple of months, um, we have some awesome interviews and content that we've stacked up. We've been we've been working, you know, these three months. We've, of course, been taking a lot of time to take a break for our mental health, get ready for school, prepare, you know, adjust to a lot of the changes in our life, and just taking what a long year this has been. I know we're gone for three months, but honestly, three months in 2020 felt like three years. Man, it's been um, it's been a lot. So. We hope you are finding ways to stay safe, um, healthy, not just physically and, you know, keeping away from the virus, but also just mentally. Um, It's been tough here. The volume of death we've had to see around us and this collective thing we've battled is, you know, a a once, hopefully a once in a lifetime event, um, but definitely not something. I think even over the three months, the reason why it's felt so long and so hard drawn is that even in the middle of a pandemic, it feels like so much has happened in the three months. Um, First, personally, in our lives, other than starting school, there have been so many changes that we can't quite share on this podcast as openly, but also in the world. There's just so much news all the time. So we think that at least one piece of advice that I would give our listeners is to, to take a break, just step outside of it for us find some time to step out of it to turn off your televisions turn off your social media and just detox because especially now that everybody needs that i remember earlier this month or was it last month um that there's the that documentary social dilemma that was on netflix and really pointed to the fact yeah. how we are so 
addicted to our phones or into our social media but what that's caused is that we're so involved in everything um we we have to be empathetic to much more than we we were originally designed to be um and it's one thing that we at least a little nervous with covering stories on the podcast is that it causes you to be more empathetic than you need to be but if you do need to which is why we try and put a mix of good news and um others together but if you do need to please take a break um it's it does you a world of good so thank you so much listeners please one thing we haven't said in a while please don't forget to share our podcast we found so many people have learned about our podcast by word of mouth their friends putting them on there's not content like this anywhere else it's just the truth um and our content is valuable the stories we share are valuable the african continent the stories of people are valuable which is why we're here and why we've done this for four years now so thank you so much for listening in please don't forget to share reads like our podcast on all platforms we're on even more platforms now so anywhere you listen to podcasts picture over to anything we're there we're there waiting for you sharing stories every other week now for you to listen to and to connect with what it means to be african thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of your week we'll see you later bye